Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to the Watford Church of Christ and our sermon from today, the 19th of April, 2020. We had a guest speaker today, Dr. Andrew Boachi from Manchester, lecturing there at the University of Manchester. It was lovely to have you, Andy, and your wife, Chi, with us today in the Watford Church. Thank you for joining us down the internet to speak for us today. Now, I'm adding this introduction to the sermon because, unfortunately, I forgot to press the record button at the beginning of your sermon, Andy. I apologize for that. And so you're catching Andy about maybe five minutes into his sermon. So let me just say this to get us up to speed to where Andy is in his sermon so that we know what's going on. First of all, just to say that he he is teaching, at least beginning his teaching from Luke chapter 5 and verses 33 to 39, talking about the Sabbath. So the whole uh, focus of the lesson is on the Sabbath, not so much as a technical thing, but more as a principle uh, of how we think about God's laws, God's teaching, and how we discern when to be very fixed on what we believe and practice and when to be more flexible and understand the principle behind the heart of God behind commands. And Andy skillfully shows us through this particular example of the Sabbath how we might think about those things ourselves. Now let me read for you Luke 5 verses 33 to 39 as a as a way into the, into the sermon here and I'm going to read you Andy's own translation. So here is how this passage goes. And they said to him, John's disciples are always fasting and praying, and the Pharisees do the same. But yours just seem to eat and drink all the time. So Jesus said to them, It's hardly possible for the groom's entourage to fast while the groom is there with them, is it? That day will come, and then... When the groom is removed from their presence, they will spend their days fasting. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, No one tears a piece of cloth from some new clothes to fix a hole in some old ones. If they do, not only will the new clothes tear, but the old won't even match the cloth from the new. And no one pours new wine into old leather wineskins. If they do, the new wine will burst the leather wineskins and the wine will itself be poured out, simultaneously destroying the skins. On the contrary, only new leather wineskins are fit for new wine. And no one drinking the old stuff wants the new, for he says, the old makes sense. And that last verse, that last sentence is really interesting and Andy will unpack that. So I hope you enjoy what Andy has to share. Thank you very much again, Andy, for coming to be with us today. Look forward to the next time. And if you have any questions or thoughts in response to today's sermon, do drop us a line. You can email me, malcolm at malcolmcox.org, if you'd like to know more about our church or about the topic of the sermon today. Thanks very much. Take care. Neither Judaism nor the thing that God is presenting, it destroys them both. Jesus is heralding this new era, this fresh approach to God that can't be mixed with old traditions. But then that very last saying in verse 39, which is actually unique to Luke, Matthew and Mark both have equivalent versions of uh, of this uh, this incident. 
but Luke has this unique saying in chapter 5, verse 39. It says, no one after drinking the old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. Jesus knows that there'll be some Pharisees who won't come to him uh, because they're satisfied with the old wine that they're used to and nothing is going to change their mind. The first thing I want us to consider today is that I think some of us as believers, we get very comfortable with the way our lives are just because we're used to them. We have this kind of if it ain't broke, don't fix it attitude. And oftentimes I think what happens is that we limit what God can do in our lives because we're nervous about having the way we've always done things questioned. Now, see, Jesus may have work for you that you've never considered. Um, And you'll end up not considering them because you get too attached to your own traditions and to your own kind of way of doing things. In Luke's second volume, in the book of Acts, um, I'm sure you all remember the story where Peter has a vision of a cloth being unfolded and a bunch of four-footed animals coming um, out of the cloth in the vision and, and God giving him a command. Uh, this passage is quite interesting to me. It's been particularly interesting in my own research. I, I do a lot of work with the, um, the uh, letters of Paul. And I'm always interested in why it was God felt the need to call Paul in the first place. This entire business of what happened on the Damascus Road seems to be a very elaborate move. Um, especially when we already had an important leader in the Jerusalem church like Peter, who was Jesus' closest friend. We thought we'd read in Acts 10. You needn't turn there, but just uh, listen to me read this here. It's in Acts 10 from verses 9 and following. It says, about noon the next day, they were on their journey and approaching the city. Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened. And something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times and the thing suddenly was taken to heaven. So Peter has his vision. And God says to him, take, kill and eat from these four-footed animals. And Peter's response, surely not, Lord, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. In other words, Peter held to the Jewish law so tightly, not even God could get him to break it. (laughs) He was so attached to his traditions. Three times, we're told, God had to tell him, get up and Peter, Peter, kill and eat. Listen to his response. No, God. that the law says no the law forbids it and you can imagine god yelling down at peter look mate i'm god it's my law i said get up kill and eat but you see peter so attached to his tradition imagine peter being the person charged to go and bring the message to the gentiles when he's so attached to the jewish law that god had to beg him three times to break it that to me explains why paul someone of a completely uh, different temperament, a far more maverick temperament, was uh, called in to take the message to the Gentiles. And so Peter's fear about breaking the law ends up becoming this massive stumbling block. 
And sometimes I think our own attachment to conventions um, becomes a stumbling block. Uh, we, we often get so afraid of stepping beyond what we're used to um, that we muffle God's call today. I just want you to think, what might God be calling you to if you weren't afraid um, of, of a direction that you were being called to? What might you do? How might you challenge yourself to be uh, a better, more committed student of Jesus Christ? Well, let's read on. Um, beginning of Luke 6 is the first uh, clash that Jesus has over the Sabbath directly. So that first passage sets the context. But we read this in uh, Luke 6 in verses 1 through 5. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them together in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, what are you, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, uh, he ate what is uh, lawful only for priests to eat. And also he gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Um, now, we know that their crime wasn't stealing here. Um, in Deuteronomy 23, it gives permission to, for, to anyone to, to pick grain from their neighbor's field uh, with their hands. The, the problem here, according to verse 2, is that Jesus' disciples were doing this on the Sabbath. Now, we know um, from Exodus 20 and Exodus 34, labor, including any agricultural labor, is forbidden on the Sabbath. So even to pick grain would be uh, like the equivalent of reaping, to, to rub the grain in your hands might be considered threshing. Um, and so Jesus responds by bringing up this incident where David ate the consecrated bread um, from the temple. And that's in, uh, that's in 1 Samuel 21. We, we needn't uh, go there. Uh, which I'm sure the Pharisees they, you know, were well aware of. They knew this story very well. So Jesus says that David entered the house of God uh, and ate the consecrated bread, which was only lawful for priests to eat. Of course, David's a king. He's not a priest. He's not a Levite. He shouldn't be eating this bread. Now, the interesting thing here is why Jesus brings up this story, because there's no indication that what David did, he did on the Sabbath. David wasn't breaking the Sabbath. Jesus' disciples apparently were. Why then would Jesus bring this story up in response to his disciples being challenged over uh, uh, breaking the Sabbath law. Well, it seems that what uh, Jesus is driving at is that David was in some way being, I don't know, almost flippant about the Jewish law. But he was being so because the human need was at stake. In other words, what David's example demonstrates is that it seems the law was never intended to be this inflexible, absolute ideal in its application. The purpose of it was to serve the human need and to connect human beings to God. So David, it looked like, much like it must have looked that Jesus was, um, was a lawbreaker. Um, when actually, in actual fact, what David was doing was pointing to the very heart of the law, which is to address human need. 
And of course, Jesus's point here is very simple. If the Pharisees were going to condemn him and his disciples, they would have to simultaneously condemn King David, which, of course, the scripture itself never does. So the point that Jesus is making surely is this, that if um, David had the right to overlook a law, a law, of course, ordained by God when necessity demanded it, then surely God's Messiah, the son of David, this great descendant of David, who declares himself as Lord of the Sabbath, then surely he and his followers have a greater right uh, when the need demands. And I think here's the key. I think if we treat Jesus's words simply as a list of uh, do's and don'ts and never plumb down to the level of what his words truly point to, which is the human need and human connection with God, then oftentimes we miss what Jesus is really saying to us. Now, sometimes Jesus makes this obvious. I know um, you you had a a, 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 a great class on uh, the Sermon on the Mount recently. Um, You'll remember uh, the so-called antithesis section where Jesus says, the law says to you, you know, you have heard it said, but I say to you this. Sometimes Jesus makes it obvious. Sometimes Jesus points to the deeper meaning of things for us. So the law says, do not murder. But Jesus says, look, the heart of this command is that the kind of feelings, the hatred, the anger that lead to murder, even there, the crime, the crime begins in the heart. And he beckons us to look deeper into his words to really understand what God's trying to communicate to us. But I want you really to do this with as many of Jesus's commands as you can, uh, to not just look at them superficially, but to probe to their heart. Think of Jesus's um, manual for reconciling in Matthew 18. This is not just some uh, good advice about how to, to resolve an issue with your brother. It goes much deeper than that, surely. Jesus is is trying to articulate that uh, a community requires a level of honesty that transcends the comfortable and the superficial. And that's why you must get X and Y uh, involved if you can't win your brother over. A little later, in fact, in, in Luke's gospel, he tells a story about a persistent widow who keeps going to a, uh, someone to demand ju- justice. Um, and the context says that, you know, it's an encouragement to pray. Now, surely Jesus is not going to go into a, a big, elaborate story just to tell us that it's good to pray a lot, right? Any Jew knows that praying a lot's good. Um, but rather, of course, what Jesus is driving at is that if people are going to be in sync with God's agenda, this thing he's doing, which he calls the kingdom of God, then we're going to have to make sure that our agenda is in sync with God's. That's the only way we'll grasp the kingdom of God. And that requires a continual appeal to God. I want to to, to call us all um, in our study of Jesus's words to look beyond the superficial. If there's anything that this time um, should should teach us, um, it's that probing the heart of Jesus's words is the thing that's truly going uh, to change us. There's so much, I think, of what we uh, wrestle with uh, in the faith. Um, and even what we often disagree with in the faith uh, is because we we look only very superficially at Jesus's words. Uh, and that time invested in probing and plumbing the depths of Jesus's words 
is 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 not time wasted at all. This is um, this is crucial if we're going to grasp uh, God's uh, uh, kingdom uh, pronunciation. Don't look at the gospel as the sort of church rule book. Um, look at it rather as the story of what it means to walk with God and understand that you, as a believer, have an absolutely central place in that story. Let's carry on reading. Luke 6 uh, in verse 6, and we'll, uh, we'll finish shortly. Uh, Luke 6 in verses 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there uh, whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. Jesus loved to do these things publicly just in case there was any ambiguity. Um, so he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? He looked around at them all. and Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. The Pharisees... Um, were so paranoid about breaking the law that they had uh, a bunch of traditions which they built up around the law. We all, all often refer to it just as the oral law or the traditions of the fathers. And the idea was to protect the law from being broken. So there are all these traditions which would the Pharisees held to incredibly tightly. Um, and as long as people obeyed those laws, they'd never get close to breaking the actual law of God itself. And here is, is an example of, a, of the kind of tradition that built up around the law. So uh, traditionally, not, not according to the law, but traditionally, Pharisees would argue that no medical help should be given to people. No medical procedures should be performed on the Sabbath. In fact, the only, the only medical procedure they allowed to be performed on the Sabbath uh, was circumcision. So unless there was a life or death situation, you were just intended to suck it up, and, and, and wait till after the Sabbath, and then you could go and get healed, just so people wouldn't come near to breaking uh, the Sabbath command. So this man with a shriveled hand is obviously not a life-threatening situation, so their thought was, let's see if Jesus is going to heal him, or let's see if he's going to be a good Jew and leave this guy to suffer for a little while and uh, be healed on the Sabbath. And so Jesus turns their thoughts into a nonsense in verse nine. He effectively says, look, if we're obeying God's law and it leads to evil, then that can't be a good thing. Surely obeying God's law should lead to life and things which are life affirming. And the Pharisees, of course, don't give him an answer. Jesus heals the man and the Pharisees are fuming. There are a couple more um, Sabbath controversies. I just want to look at one more. This is in chapter 14 of Luke. And again, this, I think, presents to us um, something important about the heart of the law. In Luke 14, in verses one through six. And again, these clashes tend to be with the Pharisees. We read one Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
but they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. <laughs> now, it seems there were numerous debates about breaking the Sabbath. Um, and these debates went on in, in uh, the ancient world. And in fact, they still go on today. Um, when they build synagogues, even today, they, they strategically place them so that no one has to walk over a particular distance to get to the synagogue uh, on, on a Sabbath day, because walking over a certain distance is considered work. But of course, you can't get two Jews to agree on what the distance is. So there were all these debates about what exactly constitutes work on the Sabbath. How do we know we're breaking the Sabbath law if we don't know what is and isn't work? In fact, in all of human history, there really has only been one Jew who we can say unequivocally fulfilled the Sabbath law. We're told that Jesus was raised on the third day. And that third day was the first day of the week, what we call Sunday. And if Sunday was the third day, well, then clearly he was crucified sometime on Friday afternoon. The only full 24 hour period that Jesus was dead was the Sabbath, the Saturday. Now, whether pulling your ox out uh, when it falls down a, a, a hole can be considered work or walking over a certain distance is considered work. One thing we can know for sure is that when you're dead, you're doing no work. So for a full 24 hour period, Jesus did absolutely no work. He perfectly fulfilled the Sabbath, something which has never been done since and will never be done again. Can't even get Jews to agree what is and isn't work. But when you're dead, you're not working. You may remember Paul saying in Colossians 2 that don't let anyone judge you in regard to Sabbaths, new moons, festivals, because these things are merely a shadow, but the substance is Christ. So Jesus is the substance. And think about your own shadow on a, on a sunny day. In Paul's mind, the Sabbath, uh, new moon festivals, um, other Jewish festivals, every other aspect of the Jewish law is just Jesus's shadow. All it does is that it tells you that Jesus is there. These things point to Christ, but the substance, the issue, the important thing isn't the festival or the Sabbath or anything else. It's Jesus. And I think in, in perfectly fulfilling the Sabbath command, um, I think there's a, a strong pointer that the Sabbath is only meaningful if we understand Jesus. I've suggested that we probe deeply into the words of Jesus. I also suggest thirdly and finally in this time of isolation that we're all going through, uh, which is almost a sort of natural time of almost forced reflection, um, that we really think about the person of Jesus and who Jesus is, this person who the entire law and prophets and every Jewish festival um, points to. This time, if, if it's done anything, it's kind of, it, it's, it's stripped away uh, many of the sort of conventions and props that we normally lean on and take for granted. Um, 
you know, even just physically being together um, in a church building. If there was ever a time to tell you that your faith isn't about these props, but it's about this person, Jesus, now is that time. And I think it comes through in how we are and how we treat one another during this time. You know, if you find that you're super irritable with your spouse over this time, I think it's a good thing to ask yourself, well, does my faith revolve around the usual props that I lean on or does it really revolve around Jesus? If you've become more short tempered than you normally are, guilty. Um, then again, it's a good question to ask yourself, what does your faith revolve around? Um, our faith ought not to be something which is institutionalized. Um, our, our, our faith must revolve around Jesus. Whilst you're spending time probing Jesus' words, I want you also to probe Jesus the person, Jesus the character. Now that we don't have all these sort of usual support systems that we so easily rely on, it's our knowledge of, our connection to, and our devotion for Jesus, um, which must be the centerpiece of our faith. Um, and as difficult as a time as this might be, um, I think it's actually good, a good time to really ask and test ourselves to see if we're in the faith, to test ourselves and see if Jesus is the thing and the person that really our entire worldview revolves around. So in summation, then let, let's not let's not pray. And I, I kind of agree with Brene Brown. Let's not let's not pray to return to business as usual. Let's not pray to the things return to normal. Rather, don't let your traditions limit you. Don't allow your attachment to the way I've always done this thing. Um, stop the call of God from opening a new door in your life and a new way that you might serve him. Secondly, really take time to probe the words of Jesus um, and, uh, and probe the depth of their meaning uh, and connect yourself to this story, this great story which began with Adam and God and will end with heaven. You are a central part of that story. And the way that you you discover your role in that story is to meditate deeply on the words of Jesus, but not just the words of Jesus, but the person of Jesus, the, the blueprint of the lives that we're called to live um, is this person. It's not any of the conventions and props that we, we lean on, but Jesus um, himself. These are the things that I've been, as I say, ruminating on, which are, have been helping me over this time. Uh, I really hope that they uh, help you somewhat as well. But thank you so much for your attention. Thank you so much for having me in Watford. And God bless every single one of you.